And Father, we pray for the Word of God this morning. Lord, the triumphal entry. Father, the uh, people crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed be the King of the Lord, Lord. We just thank you. Would you uh, bless this message? Lord, would you be here with us? Would you open our hearts to this word? In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Mark chapter 11 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 21. My wife and I had the privilege to be part of a church plant in England And one thing about ministry, when you get involved in ministry, you do very little sightseeing. So I didn't even get a chance in the first year to go to London. And we had some friends visit us, and we decided I'd never seen Buckingham Palace, and I I wanted to see the changing of the guard, you know, or the where you have the guards with the, with the regalia, the the red suits and the big tall bearskin hats. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Well, the England, they, they love their, their queen, they, they love the royalty, and they, they, they hold them in high regard. And you see that with most countries that have kings and queens and royalty, that they hold them in high regard. And, and most of those in royalty, they live opulent lives. They have a lot of servants and a lot of money, but that is not the way with the kingdom of God. We have a king who didn't come in opulence. He came in poverty. He didn't come to have people serve him. He came to serve. And Mark, particularly from chapter 8 on, right now he's driving home this point. We have a king. Now he may not reign immediately on this earth, but he's still the rightful king. And we, we see here in this message today that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem. Jesus is coming with an entourage, if you will, and he is the long-awaited messianic king. But I've got to tell you, this is kind of a strange event. Um, we call it the triumphal entry, but it's not really appropriate to capture what this is. Now, there's really no question that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised king. He's the son of David. He is the son of God. And Mark has been driving this point home really strong from chapter 8. Now, Jesus has all the qualifications. He's the son of man, son of God. He's demonstrated his deity. He's also demonstrated his full humanity. But we might call this a false coronation because he's not going to take the kingdom yet. The kingdom is later. We might say that the kingdom will happen when he ascends to the Father and he's seated at the right hand. Or we could say when he establishes an earthly kingdom for the millennial reign. That's why this is kind of a strange event. It's not like any other coronation of any other king, but he has the right to it. This triumphal entry, and also there's two events that are tied to it, we're going to see the characteristics of what kind of king is Jesus. So this morning's message will answer this question, what kind of king is Jesus, and how should we as his people respond to him? How should you respond to a king like this? We're going to take this in sections. First, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. So Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 says, As they approached Jerusalem and Bethpage at Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he'll send it back here. And they went away, and they found a colt tied to the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. 
And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying this colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. So the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus is a king who is divine, and he deserves our trust. Jesus right now is going to display omniscience. That's the ability to know the future, and this is going to reveal that he is truly God. Now it says here in verse 1 that they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. So the ministry for Jesus right now, it's just about finished. He's in that final week. Now many of us know this is Palm Sunday, and he's going to ascend that road that we looked at last time from Jericho. Now Jericho, I don't know if you know this, but Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. And he's going to ascend to Jerusalem, which is about 3,000 feet above sea level. This is a long uphill trek. It takes about six hours to get there. Now remember last week, we learned that Jesus healed and he saved a blind man, and that man's name was Bartimaeus. But he also heals someone else, and, he, and he, well, he saves someone else, and that's the most hated man in town in Jericho, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and this is a slap in the face again to those religious leaders of the day. God does a great work with those that were most despised by those religious leaders. Guys, the tr- people that are traveling to Jerusalem, they would first come to Bethany, and then they would come to Bethpage. Bethpage is a little hamlet that, or a district you might call it, on the south side of the Mount of Olives. And so they would come through the Mount of Olives, they'd see Bethpage, and then they'd come into Jerusalem. Now we've got to remember that Jesus is on a mission. He is on a mission, and he tells us what that mission is in Mark chapter 10. This is what it says in verses 33 and 34. He says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. That's the mission. See, the Jews want him to take the kingdom. The Jews want him to come in and establish a kingdom now, to throw out Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. But no, he didn't come for that. He came to die. He came to be killed, to go to the cross, to pay the sins of the world. This is the mission But before he does this, he needs to let the disciples know without a shadow of a doubt that he is truly God. They're going to need it. We need to also understand this. Our Lord is God, and we need to worship him fully as God. Now, it says here in verses 1 and 2 that that he had two of his disciples go get a colt of a donkey. Look at the text here. It says, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now, most of the people today look at a donkey as just a beast of burden. But in David's day, a donkey was a, a royal animal that the king sat on. And it's very important here that the Lord have a colt of a donkey because he's going to fulfill a prophecy. This is Zechariah 9, verse 9. Now, Mark doesn't have it in his text, but Matthew does. And the reason Mark doesn't is because he's writing primarily to Gentiles. But this is what Zechariah 9, 9 says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Jesus is going to fulfill that prophecy here with the triumphal entry. And so he sends his disciples to go get this animal. But we need to understand, because Jesus is divine, because he is God, he's directing this whole event. And everything that we see and observe, Jesus carefully orchestrated everything here, every detail. The day and the hour were selected before eternity to happen exactly at this moment. The triumphal entry will be on that first day of the week that will precipitate his death on that Friday. Guys, he will be that final Passover lamb that we all need to pay the sins, to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin. And then he will rest in the grave on the day of rest, Saturday, the Sabbath. And then he will rise again on Sunday, which is the day that we celebrate here today. Everything, the time, was perfectly planned. But not only the time, but the mode. How is he going to get there? Well, he plans this too. Look at verse 3 here. It says, even he, he told them what to expect. He's going to arrive on a colt. It says, if anyone says to you, what are you doing? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it back. Guys, you might ask the question, how does he know that? He's God. It's omniscience. He has the ability to know the future. He knows what's going to happen. And because he's God, he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. You can trust him. Oftentimes I speak to people and the area that they, str- they struggle with is can they really trust God? Is, this, is Jesus truly God? Well, here he's proving it. He's showing divine omniscience here. Guys, he knows every donkey, every colt, everything that c- can be known, everything that exists. The only things that that he doesn't know is what he allows himself to block, if you will, for his own purposes. This is pure evidence of omniscience here. And every gospel writer includes it because they want to make sure that we understand this is God here, not just a mere man. If he's a man, he's fallible. But if he's God, he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of our trust. Now, Jesus even knew the man who owned the animal. Jesus knows who's ever in charge of this animal that this man will say, yeah, just go ahead and take him. Guys, he knows where the animal is. He even knows that no one has ever sat on this donkey. He knows who the man is, what the man believes. I think this man is probably a believer. And he knows what the man will do. This is miraculous. Now, in verse 4 through 5, it says that they went away. They found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. Now, he needed his disciples to also know that he knew all this. Why? Because it's going to look like they're stealing this animal. And so they got to know that he's got their back, that this has been divinely planned. And Jesus here is directly going public. He's never done this before. He's going public here right now saying, yes, I am that king. Yes, I am the Messiah. He wants the people to know this. This is courting danger, isn't it? They've known for a while there that those religious leaders want to kill him. Well, he's going to get right in their face right now. This is a divine master plan right before the crucifixion that will settle in the hearts of his disciples, and it needs to settle in our hearts. Jesus is God, and he is worthy of our trust. Because I was reading this book, and it's entitled The 100, and an astrophysicist by the name of Michael Hart wrote it, and he asked a provocative question. He says, who are the 100 most influential people in history, and who has had the most profound impact on our lives? And then what he does is he lists off a bunch of people. 
He has Sigmund Freud in there. He's the originator of psychoanalysis. He also has Louis Pasteur. You know, basically Pasteur came up with penicillin and Pasteur was able to teach people that there are these little things called germs and they, and they cause disease. And so he has all these people in them, but he does have Jesus in there also. And he says some nice things about Jesus. He said that Jesus was the inspiration for the most influential religion in history. And he also says that Jesus had an extraordinary, impressive personality. But what made this book so interesting is Hart actually ranks them. He has the chutzpah, if you will, or maybe you might say pride, to be able to say, I know who the hundred are, and I'm going to rank them in order. Where do you think he ranked Jesus? He made him third. You know who's in front of him? Muhammad is one. And he also put Isaac Newton. It's interesting. Isaac Newton actually believed in Christ, so he, he viewed Christ as Lord and God. But this man didn't. So what Hart was trying to do is answer a question that every single person here has to answer. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Is Jesus in your top 100? Is he in your top 10? Or does Jesus have a special place where he's number one? Is God, Savior, King? That's the question you have to answer. Because Jesus is divine. He's worthy of our trust. And some of you might be struggling right now and you're saying, Pastor Rob, I'm not really convinced yet that he's trustworthy. I mean, I need more data. For 10 chapters, guys, Mark has been pounding, pounding the deity of Christ. And the question is, if you're still struggling whether or not Jesus is trustworthy, it might be a question of your heart. Do you truly know him? That is the question. And I pray that you do. And I pray that you would be like Thomas that when he came face to face with Jesus after the resurrection, he, he said, my Lord and my God, I pray that you. So Jesus is a king who is divine, who deserves our trust. That's the first thing we see right here in those first six verses. But there's a second thing. Jesus is a king who is majestic and meek, and he deserves our worship. He deserves our worship. Jesus right now, he humbly accepted and allowed his rightful place as Messiah and the coming king, and he honors God's timetable right here in verses 7 through 11. Let's, let's read the text. It said, They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So they bring Jesus the colt, and then they begin to put their coats over the colt for Jesus to ride on. This is a big moment. And Jesus gets on this colt, and as he takes off, all of a sudden, all these people start coming out and proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna means means save now. And so they're saying, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is what they're saying. And then they start laying down branches. Now some say palm branches, but they could be other branches too. And they start taking off their coats and their robes and they lay them down on the ground as he's traveling along the road. This is showing homage. This is showing homage. Basically, the spreading out of coats, it was an old ancient custom that shows submission. They're basically saying this, hey, you can walk on me. You can step on me. I am below your feet. I will honor your position as above me. 
They were showing homage, but they were also showing here reverence and worship. They're giving him the rightful place as the coming king, the Messiah. They're saying, you are above me, we are below you. We know this as the triumphal entry, but I wonder if a Roman would say that. Now, I'm sure there were some Romans there in that day, and if they saw that, would they call this a triumphal entry? I don't think so. See, the Romans, they had something that they called a triumph, and they were really good at parades and doing things big. And a, a triumph for a Roman was when a Roman general had had a conquest, and he defeated his enemy. And then they'd have this gigantic parade and he'd have all the spoils of war behind him, whatever he took from the battle and all these things. And then they'd also have all the prisoners trailing behind him. And typically he'd be in a golden chariot pulled by horses and you'd have these priests in front of him waving incense in the air and the people would praise and praise and say out his name. And then they'd come to the end and they'd come to an arena. And then all the people would gather in the arena and then they'd put the prisoners in there and have them fight for their lives against wild animals. That was a Roman triumph. But guys, this is a triumph too. It's a different kind of triumph. This is our Lord's triumph. He's the anointed king. He is the savior. Now for a triumph, a Roman general had to kill at least 5,000 of the enemy. Can I tell you, in just a few short weeks, the gospel is going to conquer over 5,000 people. Acts 4.4 says this, but many of those who had heard the message believed in the number of men that came to be about 5,000. This is a different kind of triumph. This is a triumph of love over hatred. It's truth over error, life over death. In this victory, only one life is taken. That's the life of our Lord, but it's to save. And as we know, billions have been saved from his life. And Jesus is the only king that brings in both majesty and meekness. He brings them both. Now, the, the great um, pastor, Jonathan Edwards, 17th century pastor, he, he's known as uh, really one of the greatest scholars that America has ever produced. He wrote about this in, in, a, in a sermon entitled The Excellencies of Christ. And his imagination was captured when he, rev- when he read Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Let me read that for you. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne four living creatures and, and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. So John was told to look for a lion, but instead of a lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb. And this is what Edward says about that. He says, the lion excels in strength and majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience and in sacrifice for food and clothing. But we see that Christ, as in the text, is compared to both because the diverse excellencies are both are wonderfully met in Jesus In Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility, perfect justice, yet boundless grace, absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. He is all sufficient in himself, yet he is in his entire trust and dependence is on God the Father, and he is worthy of our worship. Jesus is majestic, but Jesus is also meek, and he is worthy of our worship. And the choice of the cult here shows both. 
It's majestic because it's in the line. That's what David would do. It's, it's showing he is that coming king, that Messiah. But it's meek because it's humble and it's, and it's meek and, and he comes slowly. He doesn't come like the kings of our world that would come with you know, the sword raised high on a big steed. No, he comes on an animal that's fit for a child. It's humble. He humbly and slowly and purposely comes in. And the people start to worship. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's the the name for the Messiah. Hosanna in the highest. And Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees began to complain. Luke 19, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said this. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, even the stones will cry out. This was meant to be. He deserves glory. And if these people will not give him glory now, God will make sure that even his creation gives him glory. Even inanimate objects like rocks will cry out at this moment. But this is God's king, but it's not time to rule yet. It's not time yet. But he's making a display. I think for us and for his disciples at that time, this is truly the king, but it's not time yet. And not only is it not time yet, these people missed it. They missed their moment. For three years, the Messiah, God incarnate, had been in their midst, and they didn't get it. See, they don't truly worship him as he should be worshiped. Their hearts are skewed. They're bent. Luke 19, 41 through 42 says that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept. He wept over it saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will throw a barricade against you and they will surround you. They will hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Jesus in his mind's eye as he's traveling this road into Jerusalem, he begins to weep because he sees what's going to happen to the city. They missed it. They missed it. And as Jesus looks into your life right now, does he see peace? Or does he see desolation? Does he see judgment? Or does he see you saying, Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I pray that you haven't missed it. I pray that you haven't missed it. Guys, in about 40 years, we know that Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, is going to come in and he's going to kill over a million people right here in Jerusalem. And not one stone is going to be laid upon another in the temple. He's going to destroy everything. And Jesus weeps. This shows his humanity and his compassion. Verse 11 says that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he comes to the temple and after looking around at everything, he left Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. And I thought, man, that's a blah ending for, for this kind of coronation thing that comes up. He just comes in, looks around, and they leave and they go back to Bethany. You know what I think he's doing? He's casing the joint. He is. He's going to be back the next day. Right here, he's meek and he's humble. He's not going to be that this next day. And I read an article about a college professor. His name is Scott McKnight. And, and he likes to give a test to all of his incoming students. And the test begins with a, with a series of questions about what the students think that Jesus is like. Is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party? Or is he an introvert? 
These questions are followed up with a second test, uh, slightly different or altered language that the students answer about themselves. And this is done actually in a number of schools, and there's been a lot of professionals that use this, but the results are pretty much consistent across the board. Everyone who takes this text thinks that Jesus is just like them. McKnight added, the test results also suggest even though we think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. And McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms what French philosopher Voltaire said. He said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. My fear is that your Jesus is not the Jesus from the Bible, but you've made a Jesus in your own image. I pray you're not doing that. Now, some of you might object here and say, well, well, Pastor Rob, how am I supposed to worship somebody I've never seen? That's exactly the question that Thomas had, isn't it? He said, I won't believe unless I see him and I can touch his hand and touch his side. I want you to hear Jesus' response to that. John 20, 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? But blessed are those that did not see and yet believed. Do you believe? Jesus is a king who's majestic and meek but he deserves our worship. He is a king who is divine, and he deserves our trust. And there's a last one. Jesus is a king who's righteous. Hey, guys, but he requires fruit from his people. This is verses 12 through 29, uh, 21, excuse me. Jesus has righteous indignation towards sin, and he does not sit idly by as people begin to profane his father's name in his father's house. He demands spiritual fruit from their lives, and he demands spiritual fruit from our lives. Look at verses 12 through 21. And on the next day, when they had left for Bethany, he became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for the figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how they might destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered. Okay, so the night before, Jesus goes in to the temple and he gets the lay of the land. And he notices that they got all these money changers, that there's all this stuff happening. And, and, and if you will, it's a calculation of what he's going to do this next morning. Now, the killing of the fig tree is the only destructive miracle in the Gospels. Now, you need to understand, both the fig tree and, if you will, the destruction of the temple, him going into the temple, attacking the temple, these are both together, they're linked. The fig tree's a parable. It, it's an analogy of the coming destruction of the temple. It is a preview of judgment. In fact, this whole section right here, verses 12 through 21, it has two components. You have the fig tree component 
and you have the temple component. And what Mark does, he does it than any other writer. He sandwiches the temple, if you will, the attack on the temple right between the story of the fig tree, kind of the beginning part and the last part because it's all connected. And it's all about what? Coming judgment. Coming judgment is coming to this temple and to these leaders and to these people and to this nation. Guys, this is a scary thing. As we look at this, we're going to see both an analogy and an action. The assault on the temple is a preview destruction of the temple by action. And the fig tree, as it withers, is by analogy. You need to understand something about the temple. The temple is the heart of Judaism. And the curse comes down on the fig tree. It demonstrates for us that God is not pleased with the temple or its people. God is going to bring judgment He's not pleased with Israel. And the temple represents the people of Israel. And I want to give you a quick kind of history about the temple. Genesis 22, we know that God told Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son, Isaac. Now he does that on Mount Moriah. And we know that God, what, provided him a sacrifice of his own right there on that mountain. Well, about 900 years later, David buys that mountain from Ornan. And then six years after David buys it, his son, Solomon starts to build the temple. Now that's the first temple, and it was a grand sight, an amazing temple. But 350 years later, because the people had fallen into idolatry, false faith, they had become hypocrites, God destroys that temple. He brings Babylon in, and he carries away the people into captivity. That's the first temple. Then there's a second temple. After 70 years, the people are released, And they're enabled by Zerubbabel to build a very modest temple. And they worship in that temple. Then a few hundred years pass, and a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes in now. He was a Greek pagan. And he brings the the god Jupiter into the temple, and he starts slaying pigs on the altar. And basically what he does, he desecrates the temple. Because the people again had sinned. They had apostasy, false religion, hypocrisy, superficiality. They no longer worshipped idols, but they no longer truly believed in their heart the way that God wanted them to. That's the second thing. It It was a desecration. It wasn't a complete destruction, but it is God judging the temple. And there's a third temple. In 20 BC, a great king by the name of Herod, we call him Herod the Great, he decides to rebuild the temple and he makes, he kind of goes on the existing temple and builds out, if you will, for 84 years. As a matter of fact, it's being built as Jesus is there. That temple, we know, takes them all the way to 64 AD, but the people's hearts weren't right. The people's hearts weren't right. And we know at 70 AD, Titus Vespasian comes in, kills over a million people, and the temple is destroyed and it's never been built again. Guys, the repeated destruction of the temple is a story of Israel's repeated apostasy and false faith. This is a warning. Jesus is coming with a warning. And what we have here is Jesus with a preview of that final destruction, that third one, that final destruction of the third temple. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, On the next day they left Bethany and he became hungry. And seeing at a distance the fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he'd find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So the day before is a triumphal entry. He wakes up in the morning. He's, you know, Jesus had the habit of getting up early and praying, right? 
So he's hungry. And he sees this fig tree and leaf. He'd had a busy day the next day. He wants some food. And so he says, I'm going to go over there and find some fruit because it's in leaf. And he goes there and there is no fruit. Now, guys, there should have been fruit. And, and I, I didn't know this, as I, but as I did the study, I learned this. With the fig tree, the fruit comes first, then the leaves. And what I mean is that there are these little nodules, these little fruits, they call them, that, that you can actually eat. They come first, then leaves, and then later the large figs come, the ones that we are all, all used to here. And if there is no fruit here, that probably means that the, chi, the tree is diseased, that there's some kind of disease, maybe even from the roots already in the tree. But what Jesus is going to do, he's going to use this as a parable, as an example, that it's just leaves, that it's false faith that's in the temple. So our Lord expected fruit. And this is a lesson that will be claimed about the people of God right there. Verse 14 says, He said to it, May no one eat fruit from you again. And so the disciples heard this, but they didn't see what happened to the fig tree because they go on in to the city. This is a curse. Jesus curses the fig tree. We know it's a curse because verse 21 says that Peter said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. So the tree has appearance of fruit, but it has no fruit. That's the same thing with the temple. It has the appearance of religion, but there's nothing alive in it. It was false faith. It was false belief. It's kind of like what Jesus said in Matthew 23, a time and time again, he says, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite to them. When God looks at your lives, does he see just leaves? Is there fruit there? And fruit means, do you have change in your life, in your attitudes, in your actions? Is there something growing in you towards Christ's likeness? Do you have anger issues? You getting a handle on that? Is the Lord slowly changing your heart and helping you? Do you have a heart of bitterness, one that doesn't change and you're unwilling to forgive? Or do you have a heart that's willing to trust the Lord through it as he changes your heart? Do you struggle with lust? Have you made a covenant with your eyes and your mind? Are you willing to say, hey, that's just the way I am? Do you see fruit? God demands it. Christ desires it. You must have fruit in your lives. And it reminds me of the parable in Luke 13, 6. And he began, began telling us the parable. This is Jesus. A man had a fig tree would have been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year until I dig around it and put fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. God's about to cut down the temple. And if you notice in that example, he said for three years, Jesus was on the earth for three and a half years. His ministry was three years. This is a picture of him with those in Israel. But we need to beware, guys. Do you have fruit or he's going to cut it down? That's the example. This is a picture of the leadership of the nation. They have gone astray. It's a picture that we see in our nation, isn't it? No more believing in in, in the God of the Bible No more being a nation under God. Careful. God might cut it down. In verse 15, it says that they came to Jerusalem. So so now Jesus sees the fig tree. 
he does this parable and now he comes to Jerusalem and it says he enters the temples and begins to drive out those who are buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables and the money changers and the seat and those that were selling doves and he would not permit anyone to carry out merchandise through the temple. So first you have this analogy of the fig tree but now in action Jesus comes in the temple. This is for real. This is a demonstration of God here. This is the curse being lived out in action in the temple. So rather than being the king that's going to assault Rome, Jesus is a righteous king here that's going to assault the temple. That's the picture that we have here. It's interesting, at the beginning of his ministry, at the very beginning, Jesus came to the same temple and he made a whip. You guys remember that? And he drove out the money changers. So at the beginning of his ministry, he does it. And now at the end. And in between, he pleaded with the people, turn. Turn. God's looking for fruit. Real faith. Real trust. What we need to understand is that God always judges a nation by its worship. If the temple is corrupt, it means the leaders are corrupt. When the leaders are corrupt... It means that the people are corrupt. And if the people are corrupt, the nation is corrupt. Everything was corrupt. And so Jesus comes in and he begins to throw tables down and all that. And the first thing that I saw that amazed me is that he could actually do it. This is like Samson's strength here. He comes in in full power and no one can stop and, and business just stops. So Jesus comes into a place called the Court of the Gentiles. It's the largest place that Gentiles were allowed in. And you could hold up to thousands of people there. And then it went up. It, you had the, a massive court that's called the Court of the Gentile or the Nations. And then the Court of the Women. And then the Court of the Israelites. Then you had the Court of the Priests. But Jesus is at the bottom floor, if you will, where most of the people were. And what had happened is the priests were in cahoots with all the business guys. And they were ripping off the people. And so God is bringing down, if you will, judgment so Jesus begins to strike back at the temple. It is a visual of God coming against the religion of the day. And the chief priests and the priests begin to worry about this. And it says here in verse 18 that the chief priests and scribes heard this and they began to seek how they might destroy him. And they know that this is the plan, right, that leads to the crucifixion. This would have been incredible to see because nobody could stop him. Now why did he do this? Because he's holy. Jesus Christ is a king who is righteous. He is a God that is holy. And these guys had made something that should have been a place of peace and a place of prayer. It was supposed to be a witness to all the nations. That's why they call it the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles should have been came in there and says, wow, God is here. But what did they see instead? They saw dinner robbers. They saw people taking advantage of the people. It was a poor witness. May I tell you something? We no longer have a temple, but you are the temple of God. You are a temple made without hands. And God desires more than anything from your life that you have fruit, real spiritual fruit in your lives. Is there something in your life that is keeping you from honoring the Lord with your life? It is. You need to cut it off or he will. This is a warning to the people then, but it is a warning to us. This was supposed to be a witness. We are supposed to be a witness. That's the great commandment, right? Go out to all the nations, right? And make disciples. This is that picture right here. And what about worship? 
Do you know that the, that the destruction kept happening? After this, Jesus leaves, right? But do you know that Friday that destruction kept happening? When Jesus died, there was that, if you will, that veil that covered the Holy of Holies. It was split down the metal, torn in two. Another, if you will, picture of the destruction of the temple. That religion is done. We now have a new one. And we have a Lord that we need to worship. And no longer is worship done in a temple. Worship is done at the cross. Worship is done at the cross. Is that where your worship lies? I pray that it does. Let's close in prayer. Well, Father, I thank you that uh, we have a, a king, a Lord that is righteous and who requires fruit from his people. Lord, I thank you that we have a king who is God and you deserve our trust. That we have a king who is majestic and humble, Lord, and you call us to worship you. And That's my heart, the heart for here for the people. Lord, if there's anything there, anything that needs to be cut out, anything that needs to be changed to honor you with our lives, I pray that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I have you stand with me? Since we are the temple of God, and we are to be that witness, if you will, to the nations, he's not talking so much about the witness as in going and evangelizing, but the witness as the testimony of your life. And I think the heart, that's kind of the thrust that I see with the, the attack on the temple is that we need to be very clear in our heart before a holy God, how we live our life before Him. And so during this message, if something was pointed out by the Lord in your heart saying, Lord, I need to be free from that thing, it causes me not to be a good witness for you. I want us to pray together right now. I want us to bow our heads and ask the Lord to cut it out that he'll give you the strength to stop this. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are the temple of God. Lord, I ask that you would help me. Free me, Lord, from those things that dishonor you. Lord, I want freedom so that there will be fruit. Help me to live a life that honors you in every area. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.